Hello and welcome to another Latino Life podcast. My name is Amaranta Wright. And this is Jose Luis. And today we have for you another hour packed full of great interviews and great music. Um, later on, we'll be talking to the rock legend that is Phil Manzanera, who started off with Roxy Music. He was the lead guitarist of Roxy Music back in the 80s and 90s and went on to one of the world's biggest record producers, producing iconic Latin American groups like Fito Pais, Atercio Pelados, Os Paralamas, and Draco Rosa. And few people actually knew that he was half Colombian. And so he brings us his uh, songs that made him from his childhood, from his Colombian mother and his background in Latin America. But first, we go to sports and football the non-football fans of you will have to bear with us because we have a fascinating interview don't we jose well as you know i'm a, I'm a big football fan and recently with the death of maradona even though i'm not a big fan of his persona of the field and he's kind of coinciding his death with the with the end of messi at barca and i thought it was a very interesting time to talk about both of them and by chance we received a book a few weeks ago called Maradona, the Hand of God, a new edition of an old Maradona biography by Jimmy Burns. And I was interested in, in talking to this guy. Yeah, because he's actually written books about Messi, about Barca and about Maradona. He's really covered the three of them. And um, yeah, I happen to know Jimmy Burns. And in fact, in the 90s, when I was in Argentina being a journalist, and he popped up in Buenos Aires researching this book on Baradona and we hung out quite a bit. And he's quite a character and he has lots of stories to tell. And despite his very Scottish name, Jimmy is actually half Spanish, as you hear in the Spanglish um, that he speaks. Uh, yeah, he was a total character. I find him really, really good to talk to. And we started the interview by asking him what he thought about the death of Maradona. Well, you can imagine um, when he died, I was sort of immediately inundated with texts, SMSs, emails, uh, phone calls. These were sort of people who almost sort of thought that I had lost a, a, a long lost brother, you know, um, or, or a father or something. Forgetting that all I was was, was his biographer and, and an unauthorized one as, as that. It came as a, as a shock to me, but it was not an unexpected news once I reflected on it. Um, and that was because I'd obviously kept following him over the years and particularly followed events in, in recent years. Um, it seemed to me in my the new edition of, of my, my biography of him, it's entitled A New Chapter's Called A Death Foretold, which is obviously, I don't claim originality for that. It's as drawn from a well-known uh, Latin American author. It was in a sense a death foretold. Uh, why? Because one only had to look at the photographs of the ill in recent years, uh, even in his sort of helter-skelter life of reaching the kind of depths of self-destruction that would have killed you or me or people much younger or older than either you or me. And yet he always came up again. Uh, there was always the sense that 
you know, Diego was beyond death almost, uh, that he would always come back. But I really got a feeling over the last three or four years that, that we were reaching the end game, basically. And particularly when one started seeing images, for instance, of this fantastic documentary made of his time in Mexico as the manager of Los Dorados. The first image of this totally overweight figure, barely be able to move his feet uh, as he goes on to the playing field. You know, you look at it and sort of think, how long can he take that weight? How long can he take that self, self-destruction? And it was evident in that documentary, for instance, and, and I talked to people involved in it, so I knew what was going on behind the scene, as well as what viewers saw. It was evident that he was taking painkillers, taking antidepressants, and that unfortunately, he would on some occasions be taking alcohol as well. He swore to one of the producers of that film that he hadn't taken cocaine for several years. I just share that with you for what is worth, but that is what he swore. But it's evident from the people who were shooting the film and certainly some of the scenes that you can see in the documentary that there were times when he was slurring his words, that uh, he was going into one of his rages. He didn't look too good, okay? And then you sort of fast forward to his last managerial job, which was in Esrima, um, Gimnasia in Argentina. And he was literally having to sit in a special kind of throne made for him like a kind of Egyptian pharaoh. It was like as if he couldn't even walk anymore. He was actually on a kind of makeshift throne. And again, it was a very tragic image. And for someone like myself who followed his life from his birth onwards and know all the ins and out and behind the scenes and what sources tell you and what really happened behind the headlines. We're talking about a life that from the age of early 20s was already involving certainly the consumption of cocaine in Barcelona. I'm sure that habit took on an accelerated uh, form uh, when he went to Italy and when he was in Argentina afterwards. So you combine the the kind of physical impact of painkillers injections that he took for most of his playing career. You combine that with periods of cocaine consumption, with periods of heavy drinking, with periods of antidepressants you've got a very toxic, destructive cocktail. You know what, now that you mentioned a film, I watched the film on his time at Napoli. And something that surprised me was the fact that at no point his ex-manager got mentioned. Do you know why that happened? Because he was a, a major figure in his life. Guillermo Coppola, is that correct? It's a good question. I, I have to say I haven't got a, a direct answer on that, not that I'm, I'm trying to avoid the question, mm. uh, but it's a good point, which, which I have to say I sort of slightly realised when I was watching it, but I just thought it was such a, another great documentary. And Asif, who is a good friend of mine, had the generosity to say publicly that his inspiration for doing that documentary was that when he was a student, he, he read the first edition of my book. And I did actually help him quite a lot with the documentary. In fact, he used a couple of interviews I did, tapes, which he then used in the film. The person I think he did does mention, because he appears in it, is, is Sister Pila, who was, of course, his manager when he arrives in Napoli, if you recall. Uh, Sister Pila, who 
was his manager in Barcelona, and then who he negotiates the contract to Napoli. I mean, I can tell you a couple of anecdotes on that, but because I knew Sister Peter very well, I also knew Coppola very well. But you're right that the absence of Coppola is quite striking. I can't say this for certain, but obviously people who are alive, you have to be more careful with than people who are dead, okay, for obvious, obvious reasons, uh, not least legal reasons. Uh, Coppola, as far as I can see, is very much around. Indeed, uh, as you recall, he was one of the people who carried Diego's coffin before he went into the ground, which is extraordinary. But you're right to ask the question, because, of course, as I document in the book, Coppola takes over from Sister Pila in Napoli and is with Diego during what I would say is a period where we see this extraordinary paradox about the Diego story. We're talking here about around the mid-80s leading up to the World Cup in Mexico and its aftermath, where we see Diego reaching the peak of his performance as a player, which I've, I've always said was definitely Mexico 1986, but also entering this extraordinary kind of self-destruct mode, you know, where his drug habit becomes more evident, uh, where his nightlife becomes more evident, uh, and where, you know, I have personal experiences of being with Diego in different places, and indeed with Coppola, which actually some of them were fun, uh, but some of them were pretty unpleasant. Quite frankly, the kind of attitudes that I saw, for instance, I remember very clearly just after I'd finished the first edition of, of my biography in the late 1990s, catching up with Diego Viari and Coppola in a restaurant in Knightsbridge in London, San Lorenzo, which happened to be at that time Princess Diana's favourite restaurant as well. And I turned up there and I remember giving Diego, uh, sitting down with him and I mean, Coppola was always, you know, very personable and, and Diego on a good night was simpatico and, and they were obviously having a good time, the three of them. And it was all going pretty well and it made me feel quite welcome. I signed a copy of the book, gave it to Diego. But then what happened was there were some English waitresses. As far as I recall, they, they were English. Some of them might have been Italian staff. I can't recall very, very clearly. My, my recollection was one particular waitress who Diego began to sort of, I mean, what in today's terms would be abuse. I'm talking about verbal abuse, but suggestive um, things that he said to her, which made her feel very uncomfortable. Um, it made the rest of the clients in the restaurant look around and see what was going on. He was obviously high on something. And then at one point, Coppola and him said, bueno, vamos a, a bailar. So they decided they were going to go to a well-known night spot in London. And they said, will you come with us, Jimmy? And at that point, I thought, not really, because I knew the kind of spiral <laughs> I, was, I was potentially getting into. I thought that was a good time to quietly return to wherever I was living there at that time. Probably a very wise move. Um, I saw an interview of you in 2011. In the interview, you said that it was difficult to answer if Messi was the best player ever. Now, 10 years later, has your opinion changed? We were talking at 2011 
what I would call one of the glory periods of Barca, one of the glory periods of Messi. I can't hide it. I'm a Barca fan. Since then, as you know, I wrote a, a double biography on Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo called uh, Cristiano and Leo, who is the greatest player. And it was a double biography. My God, if I had to do it again, I don't think I could do it because I suddenly realized I was actually writing two biographies in one, which is quite a difficult one, which means double work <laughs> because I had to go everywhere. I had to go back to Argentina for Leo. I had to go to Madeira for Cristiano, Lisboa, Manchester, you know, a lot of work, okay, a lot of sources on both sides. And in Messi's case, of course, you know, the more I looked at, at him, I realized that it wasn't just those glory days, but, you know, with Cristiano, this extraordinary, unprecedented statistical achievements, um, quite apart from what you were actually seeing on the field and the joy, the sheer joy of watching Leo play on a good day, the sheer joy, poetry and motion. But what I said then, I also say in the more recent biography of Leo, is that whenever I'm asked the question, who's the greatest, you really have to judge it in terms of the context and historical period in which those players happen to be around. You've asked me about Messi and Diego. Well, obviously, Diego played in a time where football was in a very different place to where it is, you know, has been in the last 10 or 15 years. Just to give you a few examples, for instance, Diego played when refereeing was not half as regulated and tough. And the rules of what you could do as a player was quite flexible, to put it mildly. And if you recall, Diego used to get hacked to pieces. Let us not forget the butcher of Bilbao, Goicachea, who literally came up behind him and hacked him when he was at Barca and broke his lower leg. That kind of foul would have led to a life ban today. And it just led to about three-match ban on Goicachea. Diego, as a result of that, had to take painkillers in a way that no one else had. And it was a sort of also a time in football when Diego was really the last rock star footballer. Uh, why? Because he was probably the last star footballer who could get away with playing football, taking the consumption of drugs that he was taking. Today, Messi belongs to the kind of generation of footballers who have God knows how many lawyers, how many tax advisors, physios, dieticians, medicos de cabecera, what you need, you're given, okay? The younger journalists always sort of say, my God, Jimmy, you are so lucky that you were born in a different generation when you could get to the footballers like Diego and even with Messi. Now it's impossible to to get really near them. And with all due respect to those who write them, I mean, most football biographies now are incredibly tepid, superficial biographies because you can tell they don't really get near the person. Messi has been playing in a, in a much more protected way, much more disciplined way, in a much more competitive environment. Do you judge them by the context in which they were or do you simply judge them statistically? Well, judging them statistically, evidently, Leo is undoubtedly probably the best player in the history in terms of performance and endurance at that high level of performance and uh, goal scoring creative football uh, contributing to other goals winning trophies Diego doesn't get anywhere near it except except 
in one thing, which is very important, as you know, Turos Argentinos. And you know, that's got two or three words stuck on it, which is Mexico World Cup, and then a number after it, 1986. Why is that important for Argentinos? Because that was the moment that Diego lifts that trophy and the Argentines come out of a nightmare into the light. He becomes the reincarnation of a nation after all the awful history of the juntas, the repression, the failure to win the World Cup before. That moment coincides with Alfonsín. It coincides with this new dawn seemed to be at the time of democracy. And Diego, at that moment, when he goes to the Casa Rosada, comes out onto the balcony. That is probably the sublime moment of connection between the Argentine people and Diego Armando Maradona. Barcelona now, what a mess. How did they get there and what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> My God, it, it, I couldn't agree with you more, Jose. What, what a mess. I say with sufrimiento. As you can probably tell from my occasional Twitter feeds and my social media <laughs> posts, I, I suffer this, okay? I suffer. I'm almost losing the memory of when I last enjoyed watching Barca play. I'm talking about, you know, you and I who love football, played at its best, those wonderful glory days that, that we saw in the Champions League finals, some of the league matches, that competitive spirit between particularly Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, when Cristiano was at Real Madrid. I mean, all those wonderful moments, the, the, the match, the finals against Manchester United, the Guardiola Epoca, all wonderful, wonderful moments for those of us, regardless of whether you're a Barca fan or not, for anyone who really loves right. the beautiful game, okay? And what have we got now? A dog's dinner, you know, quite frankly. As you put it, a club which is all football clubs have suffered COVID, Barca has not only suffered COVID, but has suffered some very, very mistaken transfer deals uh, that they did before COVID, where they bought certain players which maybe they shouldn't have bought or overpaid for them, and dislocated uh, Messi, didn't really know how to accommodate Messi in the evolving team, and, and Messi got increasingly pissed off, basically. He got pissed off with the president, Bartolomeo, he wasn't particularly happy with some of the players he was made to play with, all that we know. And what, what have we got now? I remember uh, Bardano, who's a very good friend of mine, whenever we talked about Barca, he said the problem with Barca is, is they should spend less time on politics and more time on football. And with Barca, again, it's a, one of these paradoxical things. Obviously, the mythology of Barca, which those are, of us who are Barca fans have played to sometimes and been involved in, but it is a mythology because to say that this is Real Madrid is Franco's team and Barca is the team of democracy. Well, as I say in my book on Barca, there were years that, and I lived it because I belong to that generation that we fought in the last years of to end the Franco regime. And I remember going to come now where Johan Cruyff was the iconic player in terms of the new Spain, of the new democracy, this Dutchman who comes in from Amsterdam and and plays in a totally different way and, and makes us feel, after all those years of darkness of Franco, that things are really happening in Barcelona. A lot of Latin Americans know what I'm talking about. 
this cultural effervescence. And Barcelona is, I'm talking about Barcelona City and Barcelona Club has lost quite a lot of that. Setting aside Barcelona as the kind of cultural hub that it used to be, I mean, Madrid is more vibrant in a way than, than Barca is, has been for a long time. I mean, I'm talking about pre-COVID, but, but even now with COVID is opening up more than Barcelona. But the club it's in the middle of these presidential elections with three candidates, one of them, as we know, Juan Laporta. Whoever wins the elections, there is no certainty whatsoever that, that Messi will stay. There is an argument, uh, which I've heard from sources close to some of the candidates, who feel that Barca would be far better off simply letting Messi go because they need the money and they also need the money to renovate the squad and get really take two or three seasons to build up a squad that's capable of winning the Champions League. Because at the moment, you've got a squad that will not win a Champions League, ni con dinero encima. You can't conceive of Barca playing as it is, winning a Champions League. Uh, so there's that huge incognito. And then, the again, slightly sad aspect, but I do write about this towards the end of my Messi biography, which I was getting a sense then that Messi was reaching the end of an era. He was reaching that age when uh, he was no longer moving as quick as he used to. They were robbing balls off him more often than before. Opposing teams seemed to anticipate his play in a way that uh, they were unable to do before. And he was surprising us less. He didn't cease to surprise us, but he was surprising us less with his genius. And he was obviously... I was suggesting had already reached a peak and was probably going down. And of course, we've got the story that we haven't discussed, which is close to the heart of many of my Argentino friends, which is, of course, La Selección. That is another story. And there we go back into Diego yeah. and Messi. You know, Diego uh, can say to, and we'll all, in, always be remembered by his fans, is that he not only sweated his national colours, but actually won trophies for them. And Messi, that is the one thing he has managed to do. Ooh, that was fun. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few things Jimmy didn't tell us in that interview. <laughs> Probably for part two. Yeah. Coming soon. Right, moving on, we come to, well, talking about legends, we are really honoured to have interviewed Phil Manzanera who anyone who is into British music, non-Latin music, will know him from the legendary band Roxy Music, led by Brian Ferry. But Phil Mancinetto was actually the lead guitarist. And he's gone on to produce uh, Pink Floyd albums. He was actually given um, a Lucas Lifetime Achievement Award by David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. He came to the Lucas and that was a very special night. In fact, I think it was Jose Luis who came up with the idea of giving Phil the award. He was responsible for some of the most exciting productions coming out of Latin America at one point. And I just found out he was living in the UK at the time. Yeah, what we found out is that Phil was actually brought up in Latin America. He he grew up in Cuba, in Venezuela, and all these countries. And actually, he didn't say this in this interview, but he told me that in 1959, he was actually there during the Cuban Revolution. And he told me that he stepped out of his house and there was like 
people firing guns everywhere and his mum dragged him back in. He was like right in the middle of it. And from there, he went to Venezuela, Colombia. And then finally, he was sent to the UK to boarding school at the age of nine. So he had a very interesting first decade of his life. Uh, Well, these are the songs that made Phil Manzanera. When I was six years old, I was taken with my parents to Havana, Cuba. And uh, my mother started having guitar lessons. And as an inquisitive little boy, I wanted to touch her guitar all the time. And um, in the end, she said, look, I'll just show you a few chords, what I'm learning. And the song, main songs that she sang were songs like Cucurucucu Paloma, um, a great song <clears throat> written by Tomas Mendes. I think it was written in 1954. So in 1957, it was relatively new and was in a a Mexican film. Personally, one of my favorite versions is the version sung by Caetano Veloso in the Pedro Almodovar film. Dicen que por las noches no más se le iba en puro llorar Dicen que no comía, no más se le iba en puro tomar. Juran que el mismo cielo se estremecía al oír su llanto. Como sufría por ella, que hasta en su muerte la fue llamando.
The other song that I used to learn uh, from my mother was Guantanamera. And of course, this was a very famous song uh, that was used with many different kinds of lyrics. One of my favorite versions of the song is by Compay Segundo. And uh, he first did it in, I think, 1946. But the, the version with the lyrics using the poem of Jose Marti is the most famous one. And I love that one too. Later, when we had to leave Havana after the revolution, a new song appeared in the 60s called Cuando Salí de La Habana. And this was a great song that I used to love because these were songs that my mother used to sing. So they have a very special place. Nunca podré morir Mi corazón no lo tengo aquí Allá me está esperando Me está guardando que vuelva allí Cuando salí de Cuba Dejé mi vida, dejé mi amor Cuando salí de Cuba Dejé enterrado mi corazón When I was growing up, uh, after Cuba, we went to live in Hawaii and so all these places, different locations had different music and they all had an influence on me. There was a special Hawaiian song called Aloha Oi, which is like a ballad, uh, which is great. But um, after we left Hawaii on our way to Venezuela, uh, the film Blue Hawaii by Elvis came out and Elvis Presley was a big influence on me. When I lived in Caracas, you could get certain LPs from the UK and one was The Shadows. So I used to love The Shadows and Cliff Richard and The Shadows. But also there was a Venezuelan band called Los Dangers, which I had their LP too. This is Sabes 
While I was living in Caracas, we also used to go and visit my mother's family in Bogota, in Colombia. My mother was from Barranquilla. The whole Manzanera family came from Barranquilla. And the music I used to listen to, my cousins used to play me, that I loved were the boleros from Armando Manzanero. And in particular, the track I love is Esta Tarde Vi Llover. Great track. Esta tarde vi llover, vi gente correr, y no estabas tú. La otra noche vi brillar un lucero azul, y no estabas tú. La otra tarde vi que un ave enamorada Daba besos a su amor Ilusionada Y no estabas Esta tarde vi llover Vi gente correr Y no estabas tú El otoño vi llegar Al mar oí cantar Y no estabas so when I was in Caracas, I used to listen to the BBC, the World Service, and uh, heard this amazing music coming out of London. And I really asked my mum and dad to send me, if possible, to London. My brother was already there. So I was sent to be a boarder, uh, age nine, and uh, going on ten. And then once I heard the Beatles and all the great music from the 60s, that really had enormous influence on me. However, even though I loved British music and pop music, I, I loved Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto and Astrid Gilberto. And one of my favorite songs ever was Corcovado and also The Girl from Ipanema and uh, the versions sung in Portuguese in particularly by Joao Gilberto. And when I was touring in Japan a few years ago, I was lucky to have Sonia Bernardo, a uh, London Portuguese singer, and she did an amazing Caetano Veloso song called Sosinho. And uh, that's a great song. So I've always loved Brazilian music too. These were the songs that made me before I really got into rock and roll. Eu tenho os meus desejos 
livro pra você mais listening to the Latino Live podcast. Going on from some great classic music there, we're going to go to our classics that we choose every week. And this week we chose Hector Lavoe. And obviously I have to pass over to you, Jose, on Hector Lavoe, since you're wearing the Hector Lavoe t-shirt. Yeah, I'm a big Hector fan. So, But yeah, so Hector Lavoe is, is the quintessential salsa singer from New York. Actually, he wasn't from New York, he was from Puerto Rico, but he was part of the, the Fania movement in the late 60s and 70s. And he's, he's such a tragic character. That's probably why he was so loved, because people could see their problems reflected on him. And recently, I was watching an interview by the Venezuelan singer Orlando Watusia. He's one of the best Venezuelan salsa singers from the golden era who went to record in New York. And he was a friend of Lavoe. And in the interview, uh, Orlando Watusi talks about his relationship with Hector and how Hector was bringing his kids to the gigs so he wouldn't get in trouble. And he saw it as a big step for Hector to recover from all these problems that he had at the time. And unfortunately, a few weeks after he saw the kid, one of Hector's kids in a gig, the kid died in very dodgy circumstances. And then after that, he, I think his flat got burned and his mother-in-law died. And it was a series of events that pretty much destroyed Hector. And I never saw it like that, because people have this image of Hector as this messy, you know, larger than life character, but in real life, he was a guy who was going through a lot of trouble for a long time, and uh, and he couldn't take it anymore. So it is a very tragic life. Well, also, I guess, you know, like all these great singers who have tragedy in their lives, it's almost like you can hear it in their voices, and it 
it penetrates, it pierces the skin, which is part of what makes them great. And yeah, and for the classics, I'm going to play a bolero this week. And it's called De Ti Depende, It's Up To You. And it's one of my favorite songs by Hector. Enamorado estoy de un imposible Confunde mi pensar la vana espera Voy viviendo de ilusión y fantasía Esperando un amor que nunca llega Ampárame Señor porque me deja que yo siga insistiendo en su cariño si sabes a conciencias que es absurdo y que jamás yo lograré tenerla tú que tienes poder ser complaciente y ayúdame a olvidarla, te lo ruego En tus manos yo pongo mi dilema De ti depende si me salvo, si me pierdo Y ayúdame a olvidarla, te lo ruego En tus manos yo pongo mi dilema De ti depende si me salvo, si me pierdo Enamorado estoy de un imposible Confunde mi pensar la vana espera Voy viviendo de ilusión y fantasía Esperando un amor que nunca llega Ampárame Señor porque me deja que yo siga insistiendo en su cariño si sabes a conciencia que es absurdo y que jamás yo lograré tenerla tú que tienes poder se complaciente y ayuda Yo pongo mi dilema, de ti depende, si me salvo, si me pierdo, de ti depende Dios. 
salsa, we can't not mention the interview we did uh, in our latest edition, which was a huge hit uh, online. And we got so many comments um, about the cover of our magazine and Luis Enrique, who I had the pleasure of interviewing. Um, so we'll have to play one of Luis Enrique's song because, again, whose idea was it to interview him? Me. <laughs> and who lost the recording so we couldn't have it on the podcast? <laughs> Me. <laughs> yes, um, I'm afraid we lost his recording and um, I think it was actually jealousy on Jose's part. <laughs> because it was... Um, we had a bit of a banter going on in the interview. I, I mean, Luis Enrique was a huge heartthrob, a star of Salsa Romantica of the 90s. But what fascinated me about Luis Enrique that I didn't know was, firstly, the fact that he was Nicaraguan. And however did a Nicaraguan end up as being one of the biggest salsa stars of the 90s, which is the music of the Latin Caribbean, of Puerto Rico, of Cuba. And somehow Nicaraguan comes and steals the show. And when I interviewed him, we had a bit of a debate about this because he suddenly in the first few minutes of the interview said, it was destiny. How else could it happen that Nicaraguan could conquer the salsa market? A bit like taking coal to Newcastle. And knowing from what I'd read about Luis Enrique's story and the fact that he actually, at the age of 15, alone with his brother in tow, crossed the Mexican border to Los Angeles to be reunited with his mother, who he hadn't grown up with. It ending up a disaster. His mother was a mess couldn't look after them so they ended up alone as teenagers in Los Angeles and from then on he managed to just find a way through and instead of kind of going down the wrong paths which he had many opportunities to do at every opportunity he made the right decisions and he was obsessed with music that's all he wanted to do and it was that that just kind of really pulled him through and so my argument was that it wasn't really destiny it was him that always found a way to forge through the obstacles forge through a lot of pain in his life and to become the star that he did so yeah we can't give you the interview but i'm gonna let you choose the song that you're gonna play sorry about that uh, for mac users do not upgrade your os right now because it's rubbish Yes, Luis Enrique was a big salsa influence on me. I really liked him when I was growing up and I still do. And he managed to stay relevant for so many years through his music. And about 10 years ago, he recorded this song called Yo No Se Mañana that became one of the biggest salsa hits ever. It was incredible to see him back with that quality. And But I'm not gonna play that because everyone has that song in their playlist. I'm gonna play a song that is not well known in the UK and probably people who are not big fans of it don't know. But it is a great song from the 1993 album called Dilemma and the song is called La Mañana. I hope you enjoy it. La mañana me despierta, siento frío, nace sol. Desayuno, pongo el radio y te voy haciendo el amor Levantarme cuesta mucho, sin embargo entre los dos Nos paramos, nos besamos, embriagados en amor 
Ya en la puerta me despido, sin embargo no te digo adiós Esta noche volveré Y ya en la calle siento un frío que me corta y quiero retroceder Con la mente tus caricias, tu calor Y así voy pasando el día en esta lenta agonía que Me destroza el corazón
So for international release, I'm going to go with an artist called Salvador Sobral. I love his music. He actually won the 2017 Eurovision Song Contest. He has a phenomenal voice, but actually he's a jazz singer and he's kind of really come into his own after winning that and managed to do what the music that he loves to do. And because I'm a big jazz fan, it's right up my street. He's a kind of a cross between Chet Baker and Caetano Veloso. And he's just got a new album out. And this song is from his new album and it's called Sangue do Meu Sangue. No silencio desta sala Está o meu segredo Cedo à Na hora da 
despedida Destruído Destruído Sorrirei So, like every week, we're closing the podcast with a UK release. This time we're featuring a rapper from the Dominican Republic called Facundo Gonzalez. He's, for me, one of the best Latino rappers in London right now. And I really rate him, even though he's very underground. He hasn't released a lot of commercial material, but his flow and his lyrics are very, very, very good. And this song is called Point of View. It is a quality song and I really like it and I hope you enjoy guys. Facundo Gonzalez, Point of View. So listen up when we say we own this Cause this reality is different, I promise We put the streets and the life that we lead And every little single breath that we breathe So listen up when we say we own this Cause this reality is different, I promise the streets and the life that we lead And every little single breath that we breathe As I sit back and think about the past In these overcrowded council estate flats Covered in blood, laying dead, life was hard Locked up in the dark, cold prison cell nights These are my tears from the heart Darkness in my eyes, there's so much pain, grey clouds Every day was a rainy day, no sunshine and sleepless nights I came from a broken home, at the age of four I grew up all alone been through poverty, lived in the slums, played with real guns, power about the feds. I'm always awake, most of my friends turn snake in these cold London streets. Ain't no love left in humanity. These are my true stories, not pretending. A real soldier's ending, stressing the life every night. What we don't get now, we get in the second life. Second Listen life. up second when life. we say second we life. own this. Cause this reality is different, I promise. Look the streets and the life that we live. And every little single breath that we breathe. So listen up when we say we own this Cause this reality is different, I promise We put the streets and the life that we lead And every little single breath that we breathe there's a pattern to the structure And no compunction about saying that it's fucked up No one I'm locked inside an undermining structure With no instruction, just a constant stream of consumer consumption I lay them higher A live wire that's bound to catch fire I'm sick and tired of being so sick and tired I'm systematically held until expired I'm categorised, locked and then divided And my future if anything's undecided My options are limited to surviving I could choose to fight it or sit in silence Cause when you try to they sure to call you violent And even quicker to put you into confinement And you actually wonder why I'm not smiling Today I learned there's a limit to my kindness Today I learned there's a limit to my kindness Cause this reality is different I promise We put the streets and the life that we lead And every little single breath that we breathe So listen up when we say we own this Cause this reality is different I promise the streets and the life that right. we need And every little single breath that we breathe Del barrio Jungla del Caribe estrafalario Donde noches picantinas traen amaneceres agrios Progreso lo se ve en el cara libro y comentarios Yo ismo colectividad con todo imaginario Basura en la radio, polis sanguinarios Pedo catequistas quitan inocencia a diario Pauperrimos salarios, acérrimos sicarios Insaciables funcionarios, putos y arbitrarios Raber encausados como mercenarios 
cadáver encausados como sanguinarios Mientras núcleo familiar desangrado ya se ha batido Padres confundidos niegan amor a sus hijos Lo que digo es mi buquem y el de muchos también Solo puedo ser yo, porta mí si en mí no creen Voy a cien, a don't give a damn Si o no me ven, mi barrio es lo que soy de corazón Son, métalo en tu cien And every little single breath that we breathe So listen up and when we say we own this Cause this reality is different, I promise Who the streets and the life that we lead And every little single breath that we breathe today uh, thank you for joining us you can find all the interviews that we featured on our website www.latinolife.co.uk and also find us on the socials at latino life uk and we'll be back soon with some more content and great music bye for now